Hey everybody! On this Valentine's Day, and in preparation for our upcoming series called Fangirls and Boy Bands, we have for you this ridiculous romp through the fearful fever dreams of shrill, stuffy adults who've long believed that each generation of teenagers is living in their own version of Euphoria, or the 2003 movie 13. You know, a bunch of sex maniacs, always on the verge of sensational death. This re-release will take you back through the moral panics over these secret sex lives of teenagers, starting all the way back at the Puritans, with their strange dating rules, rituals, and contraptions. Then we'll head through the major freakouts over jazz dances like the turkey trot and the camel walk. And then we'll move through the stories of rainbow parties and sex bracelets that came in the wake of the Clinton Lewinsky scandal. Our new episodes, Fangirls and Boy Bands, are going to land us back into this historical, fantastical realm of the mythic teenager, a liminal space that's always terrified the aging generations, one full of raging hormones and chaotic emotions, and of course, a seemingly bloodthirsty passion. In our series, we'll be focusing more specifically on the American teenage girl, an archetype that's always been maligned, disregarded, and ruthlessly ridiculed. But as we'll see, the hysterical teenage fangirl has also inspired fear and a revolving door of moral panics all their own, especially when there are tens of thousands of them screaming all at once, willing to rip the very clothes off their favorite teen idols. As is often the case, we'll see that this now commonplace phenomenon is nothing new. It didn't start with the boy bands of the 90s, with Justin Bieber or One Direction, and it didn't even start with Beatlemania. Girls and young women who show emotions not sanctioned by the status quo have always been labeled hysterical by men of the press, of the field of psychology, of medicine, of sociology. So join us as we take our seat in the swooning section to study these specimens for ourselves. As you listen to this re-release, pay special attention to the invention of the teenager throughout the 1920s and 1940s, especially how music and dance were small, fun, modest revolutions toward racial and gender equality. Social changes that have most often been fueled by the collective power of the young, whether they actually mean to make change or not. So join us for our next episodes, where we'll explore the power of the swooning seas of fainting fans and what it has to do with the sexual revolution. How without their historical, primal, teenage screams, we might be living in a very different kind of world. And now, on this Valentine's Day, please enjoy our re-release called Teenage Sex. 
On this season, we'll be exploring the moral panics, urban legends, and conspiracy theories that shape our psychology and culture, and why we end up believing them. I'm your host, Chelsea Lover-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. This rock and roll is a musical noise symptomatic of a decadent and irresponsible youth. Police found naked photos of him at age 16 on his own cell phone and was charged with making and possessing child pornography. District says that that type of dancing, anyway, is sexually suggestive. Abstinence for young people is the only certain way to avoid sexually transmitted diseases. In 1996, the self-aware slasher Scream hit theaters and taught American teenagers the first rule to surviving a horror movie. Never, ever have sex. It's a running joke that the slutty girl always gets butchered first, usually sprinting half-naked through an open field, often at the tail end of a night of illicit partying. Classic slasher movies like Halloween have their roots in an urban legend we all heard growing up, either hunched around a campfire or at some late-night sleepover, whispering around a collection of candles. A guy and a girl are parked on a deserted lover's lane, making out, the guy trying to convince the girl to go all the way. The radio crackles, a hook-handed killer is on the loose, and these necking teens are vulnerable, and not just to an untimely death. Maybe you'll remember two of the major urban legends of the 2000s, rainbow parties and sex bracelets, both of which made extreme claims about the kinds of dangerous sexual games that modern teenagers were playing. These rumors have roots in the last 100 years, as out of World War I came this brand new social group called Teenagers, who began breaking major social boundaries and challenging the status quo just by having fun. Since the invention of the American teenager, rumor and panic has swirled around this reckless developmental stage as parents wrung their hands at every changing fad, and as their sweet, innocent kids left home for dance halls, for high school, for parked cars and parties, their precious futures seemed to hang in the balance. Our modern fears around casual teenage sex got their start in the 1920s, from real risque dance trends believed to inspire sexual activity and controversial makeout parties that scandalized the country. Nervous parents and teenagers alike have continued to share lurid legends that say more about our culture's anxieties around race, gender, and class than they do about protecting the innocence of youth. Believing both teenagers are too young to know about sex, but too hypersexual to be trusted with information about it, our battles around sexual education have left them living in a kind of uneducated limbo, piecing together their own strange stories to make sense of their parents' utter horror at their potential private lives. But I want to say one thing to the American people. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to say this again. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. As we're all well aware, President Bill Clinton certainly did have sexual relations with that woman, 22-year-old White House intern Monica Lewinsky, over a period of a couple years in the mid to late 1990s. 
America had dealt with hints of presidential infidelity before, but Clinton's specific actions, as well as his comments about them, would go on to spark a sudden national debate about just what did count as sex and what something like oral sex meant for the future of morality, an act that parents definitely saw as just as bad as sexual intercourse, if not worse. There appeared to be an increasingly casual relationship to alternative sex acts, and parents feared that this liberal attitude might be infecting their children, who were simply growing up too fast in this modern sex-crazed culture, battered from all sides with images and talk of sex, 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 from Hollywood to television to magazines, and now to the leader of the free world himself. Get ready, hold on to your underwear for this one. A rainbow party is an oral sex party. It's a gathering where oral sex is performed and rainbow comes from all of the girls put on lipstick and each one puts her mouth around the penis of the gentleman or gentlemen who are there to receive favors and makes a mark um, in a different place on the penis, hence the term rainbow. In the early 2000s, the suburban legend of rainbow parties that kids had been whispering about for a couple years was largely popularized to parents by that single mention on the Oprah Winfrey show, awakening them to the nauseating new sexual reality that their kids were living in. The original story came from, of course, a writer's inaccurate book about teenagers' sex lives, aptly called Epidemic, How Teen Sex is Killing Our Kids, in which she treats Allison, a 13-year-old who allegedly attended one such party, and as a result was diagnosed by the author herself as having PTSD related to the event. Guidance counselors began treating rainbow parties like a serious concern, as gossiping teens shared rumors they had heard about the more promiscuous girls. A young adult book called Rainbow Party was published, which used rainbow parties as a teachable moment, and soon warnings of these oral sex parties became common at presentations on high-risk teen behavior. Another sex panic occurring around the same time was spurred on by this same conversation around sex acts other than going all the way. Also known as shag bands, sex bracelets were those cheap jelly bracelets in different colors that come in and out of style. Depending on the color of the bracelet, young girls were apparently signaling their potential for various sex acts to wanton boys or displaying the prizes they had gotten for already performing the acts. This color code ran an impressive gamut of possibilities, from the tame, like kissing and hugging, to oral sex and intercourse, to the shocking, like analingus and fisting. The color codes in every story on these sex bracelets varied, as did the methods by which this new phenomenon was functioning. Some adults claimed that it was part of a sinister new game called Snap, where boys would walk by and break one of the bracelets, and determined by the color, the girl would have to immediately perform the indicated sex act for the boy. There's no real evidence that either of these urban legends have any basis in reality, but they're still talked about even now as evidence that kids these days are out of control, a feeling that seems to repeat with the new, slightly more shocking trends of each generation. Let's start with the first generation of American teenagers who were beginning to form a brand new identity full of new freedoms and righteous rebellion, ready to decide things for themselves. As the thousands of teenaged veterans returned as shell-shocked adults from the extreme violence of World War I, 
the youth heading into the 1920s was profoundly angry with the older generation for creating the hellish reality that so many of their own had been living in. And they showed more distrust, less willingness to simply conform to their parents' wishes. With the sudden economic upturn of the Roaring Twenties, young people finally had freedom to leave the days of child labor behind, and those that had the means to party certainly did. America soon got to know their very first counterculture, led in part by young girls who had experienced expanded horizons while working as part of the war effort and were much more liberated than anyone had ever seen. Nicknamed flappers, these teenage girls and young women cut their hair short and wore short dresses. They drank, smoked, and danced, and canoodled with boys they were not set to marry, a very different picture from the way young women had acted in the generations before. Almost immediately, these flappers were seen as a brand new national threat. An op-ed from 1922 from a concerned mother claims that these vampire women, which they called vamps, were preying on their good little boys, claiming her son had recently confided, Mother, it is so hard for me to be decent and live up to the standards you have set me, and to always keep in mind the loveliness and purity of girls. How can I do it with this cheek dancing? And if I pull away, they call me a prude. And when I take a girl home, in the way that you have told me is the proper fashion, she is not satisfied and thinks I'm slow. The dances this concerned letter likely referred to were the hip products of jazz, widely called the devil's music, with its unstructured freedom, its beating rhythms and moaning tones, the style it inspired certainly broke social norms. Jazz and swing were the creations of black musicians who played in Prohibition-era mob-run city dance halls to swarms of increasingly white teenagers. Conservatives and aging feminists alike shun these places as dangerous for vulnerable young women, with the president of the General Federation of Women's Clubs stating, as she led her personal crusade against the new culture, that, quote, Jazz was originally the accompaniment of the voodoo dance, stimulating half-crazed barbarians to the vilest of deeds. For the first time in U.S. history, both white teenagers and black teenagers were hanging out together in unregulated and, more importantly, unsegregated spaces, much to the true horror of the white parents. Suddenly, new and seriously controversial dances began making the rounds among the white teenagers. The monkey glide, the turkey trot, the grizzly bear, the camel walk, the horse trot, the crab step, the chicken flip, the kangaroo dip, and the bunny hug. These so-called animal dances were accused of being like mating rituals inspired by the primal sexuality of the beasts. Moral crusaders said that they could lead to a barnyard morality, as well as, most horrifyingly to parents, their young white girls and boys landing in the arms of a black teenager. These dances, which by our standards are hilariously tame, seriously go watch some videos of them, so scandalized the nation that they were banned from the White House by Woodrow Wilson. Undercover cops in major cities were ordered to revoke licenses from dance halls that were caught allowing the turkey trot. And New York Mayor William Gaynor went as far as to claim that animal dances were like lascivious orgies. That was the tune 
How You Gonna Stop Their Pettin' Parties by Pete Wendling. Parents soon caught on to this other shocking trend that teenagers were calling petting parties, where groups of chums would make out near each other. These petting parties might be formal and planned in someone's basement or parked car, or they could break out randomly at the movie theater, on the sidewalk, or at the beach. These petting parties were chances to explore their own sexuality within the limits imposed by the teens themselves, the number one rule being no sex whatsoever. In the South, they were called necking parties. In the West, mushing parties. Fussing parties in the Midwest, and many flappers called it snuggle pupping and referred to themselves as snuggle pups. As calls to end petting parties were trumpeted in the media, police began responding by throwing ice water on the groups and even began fining teens for spooning. Petting parties, although certainly enjoyed for their physical side, were no doubt also a public display meant to make a statement against the strict Victorian rules regarding dating. Teenage rebellion continued to be fueled by a distaste for their parents' generation as they experienced the hopelessness of the Great Depression and the horror of World War II, until their identity was finally established for good in the late 1940s, as the Teenage Bill of Rights was printed in the New York Times, marking the first public use of the word teenager. The first time this new identity became official. Such articles included the right to have a say about his own life, the right to have rules explained, not imposed, the right to be at the romantic age, the right to ask questions, and the right to make mistakes and find out for himself. By this point, almost all teenagers for the first time were enrolled in public high school, a place where they could, together, create their own identity with a large group of their peers in a place that had previously only been used by those affluent enough to not need the labor of their children. It was also a place that became a kind of political battleground as schools were forced to desegregate, with almost all white parents wholly against the concept of their children and teenagers spending so much time around what they continued to see as a corrupting and sexually dangerous influence. Teenage savages go wild in a juvenile jungle of lust and lawlessness. Rock and roll was the first type of music specifically marketed to teenagers, as they became the newest obsession of the capitalist machine, and music, movies, cars, and clothes were being pushed to this new favorite consumer, the white suburban teenager with a pocket full of allowance money looking for the next cool thing. Developed out of New Orleans R&B, jazz music, and country and western, black singers like Chuck Berry and Little Richard possessed a nation of screaming fans, many of them young white girls, freaking parents out much the same way that jazz had in the decades before, especially when they found out that the term rock and roll was actually black slang for sex. Teenagers watched live TV through store windows as Elvis Presley put his white face on rock and roll and famously began thrusting his hips, outraging parents with blatant and celebratory sexuality that had previously only been seen in black spaces. Now it seemed to have spread to their own innocent suburban sweethearts, and God only knew what its powers could do. Soon, an urban legend got started likely from the leftover stories of petting parties combined with the daydreams of the hormonal imagination. Parents soon learned of an apparent new high school fad called non-virgin clubs and had actually begun pulling their kids out of class. 
The stories went that these clubs were full of promiscuous young women who had banded together to seduce teenage boys into at-school orgies. In Memphis, one such group apparently required that each girl have 13 sexual partners before she was allowed to join. Parents claimed the names of each participating teen were placed into a hat and then were drawn at random, forming the sexual pair for that club's meeting. These legends merged with more overt fears of integration when white parents and their kids gossiped about a black man named Sneaky Pete, who apparently gave liquor to and held wild sex parties for teenage white girls in his creepy one-room rundown shack. No evidence of these orgies, whether in classroom or shack, has ever been found. With these early relatives of the Rainbow Party came more rumors from that sex den of high school, ones that would eventually morph into the stories of sex bracelets, alleging that boys were using pull tabs from a soda or beer can to convince girls to sleep with them. The rules of the game said that if the ring of the pull tab was broken, it was worth a kiss, but if it could be removed without breaking it, it was good for sexual intercourse. Let's get back to the hook that urban legend I mentioned at the start of the episode. Here is the first recorded instance of the legend that had been circulating throughout the 1950s, as more and more teenagers bought their own cars or borrowed their parents and were able to escape their houses and schools and get a little more privacy, parking out on deserted lovers' lanes. Here is a Dear Abby letter from November 1960. Dear Abby, if you are interested in teenagers, you will print this story. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it doesn't matter because it served its purpose for me. A fellow and his date pulled into their favorite lover's lane to listen to the radio and do a little necking. The music was interrupted by an announcer who said there was an escaped convict in the area who'd served time for rape and robbery. He was described as having a hook instead of a right hand. The couple became frightened and drove away. When the boy took his girl home, he went around to open the car door for her. Then he saw... A hook on the door handle. I don't think I'll have a puck to make out as long as I live. Hope this does the same for other kids. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never frozen, ready to eat gourmet meals that are chef crafted, dietitian approved, and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This urban legend is what is known as a cautionary tale. In most versions of the story, the necking couple is getting close to having sex when the news report comes across the radio. After begging to leave out of fear, the girl finally convinces her boyfriend to stop what they're doing and take her home. Growing angry at the interruption, he tears away from the parking spot, only to find that the force had ripped the hook right off the killer's arm when he goes to drop her off. It was the process of stopping having sex that saved them both. This legend easily translated into the wonderful and exploitive world of the horror movies that were beginning to market specifically to teens, and many slasher directors have referenced this legend as a big inspiration, their films then becoming cautionary tales without really meaning to be. In addition to Lover's Lane, sexually active teens are now murdered at house parties, in the halls of high schools, or running through the woods after breaking the cardinal rule of horror that Scream finally named. Anybody want to talk about what's going on in school? No. At Canyon High School in Colorado today, a shameful silence. It's none of your business, man. About a sexting scandal that officials say implicates at least 100 students. It's not really what we want our class to be known for. An anonymous tip last week exposed a secret activity. Teens swapping nude photos of each other like baseball cards. Our newest moral panic around the sexuality of teenagers doesn't actually involve any touching at all. But the impacts of adult fear have had catastrophic outcomes for a handful of young people. As more and more teenagers were given their own personal cell phones complete with a camera, a small minority began sending each other risque photos, something that has become known as sexting. Parents were understandably upset about this new trend, especially when those photos were shared beyond just an intimate partner, passed around the school, and sometimes even posted online forever. As the public outrage and media frenzy gave way to demands for concrete actions, teenagers started to be suspended and then eventually arrested when such material was found in their messages. There was very little discretion over who was punished for sexting, and those that shared others' private photos around the school were treated the same as those who had taken the private photos in the first place, as well as those that sent consensual photos back and forth with their boyfriend or girlfriend. Since there were no laws yet on the books about sexting, teenagers faced charges of child pornography, sometimes for taking a picture of their own underaged body. In one extreme case, while attempting to charge a teenager with distributing child porn for sexting a picture of his penis to his teenage girlfriend, a police officer actually forced the boy in an official capacity to give himself an erection in front of him so that he could document it and then prove that it was indeed this boy in the photograph. The Hook story has another interpretation, one that says that the escaped killer actually represents the overstepping parent or authority figure, the moral custodian, who interrupts the private world of the teenager. Folklorist Bill Ellis says that the threat of the Hook man is not the normal sex drive of teenagers, but the abnormal drive of some adults to keep them apart. 
To the early Puritans, both because of their religion and because of the high death rate of infants and the need to continuously populate communities, sex essentially was not to be wasted, and so all sex acts outside of procreation, including masturbation, were forbidden. Tiny Puritan homes provided no privacy to the fully supervised courting couples who could only meet under their parents' watchful eyes. They were encouraged to use a courting stick, a weird long tube in which they could whisper to each other from across a table without their parents hearing. If the couple seemed a good match, the more liberal parents allowed something called bundling, where both would be placed fully clothed into separate sacks and then swaddled together in sheets, a wooden board placed between them. The hope was that it would allow some intimacy without the threat of sexual activity. This was actually seen as shocking behavior on the part of the parents who allowed it, with famous Puritan leaders like John Edwards fighting against the practice, claiming that it encouraged dangerous sexual awakenings of the young. Parents have long feared the sexuality of their kids, certainly for the obvious reasons of protecting their emotional and physical health, because they genuinely love them, but there are also other underlying reasons as well. Just as the Puritans oversaw the courtship of their kids, making sure that the match was a beneficial one to the family as a whole, parents of this century have certainly viewed recreational sex as a threat. In the 1920s, if their turkey-trotting teen were to knock up or be knocked up by a teenager of a lower socioeconomic background or, God forbid, a different race, in the minds of parents, it represented the potential loss of social standing, anxieties that were also related to black segregation and its unknown effects on white society. All these years later, Miley Cyrus's subpar live twerking sent shockwaves through the middle and high schools of the 2010s as suburban social media flooded with horrifyingly awkward teens trying to copy the dance. Maybe some of us remember the school dances that were canceled in the early 2000s because of a new epidemic of grinding and freak dancing. I shudder to remember the greasy tweens gyrating around me in a smelly converted lunchroom, but I think it's safe to say that the fear outweighed the threat. It's important, though, to reflect on some of the similarities of the panics around twerking and grinding, dances that white kids likely learned from watching hip-hop music videos. It's possible to see how some of the same racism that shaped these media and moral panics have their roots in the jazz animal dances of the 1920s and in rock and roll of the 1950s, which, though incredibly tame to us now, in their respective times were more shocking than could be imagined. The teenage brain has long been viewed as particularly prone to risk-taking, which in a sense is true. But these behaviors that from the outside look chaotic are actually helping teenagers gain experiences that will help them learn for themselves how to navigate a complicated world full of so many different complex choices. This is a biological drive specific to the adolescent stage of development. When we were hunter-gatherers, these risks meant heading out into the unknown in search of food and, of course, sexual possibilities. Without the information gained from testing and experiencing outcomes, adolescent brains will be less able to make complex decisions when they live away from the safety of their parents' home. And actually, even though they are bigger risk-takers by nature, teenagers are also better at regulating their behavior than we give them credit for, because a huge part of the learning process includes defining personal limits while still fitting into the group. 
Like petting parties had clear limits, so too do modern games some of us played like Truth or Dare, Spin the Bottle, and Seven Minutes in Heaven, and so too do risque dance trends. In terms of sexting, sociologists who interview teen focus groups are finding that, in general, teens consider those who share others' private photos without permission as breaking a serious social code, much more so than those that choose to send a consensual sext. They view those two things as very, very different, whereas people of authority seem to categorize them as very much the same. Our modern understanding of dating and sex came with the widespread access of the birth control pill for all types of women, as well as the political gains of the women's rights movement. Those in the 60s and 70s just weren't as interested in getting married right out of high school, and now what we call hookup culture began to emerge, in which sexuality did not have to signify a deeper or lasting romantic connection in order to be experienced. To deal with these rapid cultural changes, educators believed that public school sex ed needed a serious update so that it could promote the safest possible future by teaching about responsible sex, birth control, and STDs honestly. However, conservative leaders, similarly to how they have felt about mentions of homosexuality, believe that talking about sex to young people would encourage them to have it. In the widely distributed right-wing pamphlet titled, Is the Schoolhouse the Proper Place to Teach Raw Sex?, fundamentalists claimed that sex ed was part of a communist indoctrination program and a decay of moral values. They even shared rumors of teachers stripping in front of their students to perform live sex acts as demonstration. These scare tactics around the corruption of the young have continued to influence policy right up to the present day, having the direct opposite effect of keeping young people safe. Teenage sex can certainly be a dangerous thing, just like adult sex can. Kids inherit and absorb problematic behaviors like sexism, coercion, assault, harassment, and bullying. And any of us who attended high school certainly experienced and likely committed any number of these offenses. So the new teenage opinions around sexting consent that I mentioned are actually really, really important. As the cliché goes, teenagers are more biologically prone to bending to peer acceptance, to peer pressure, than any other developmental stage. Like the teens in those focus groups, the more the majority understand and value things like consent, the more those ideas will be reinforced among their social group. And the more information we arm them with, the more they will be able to begin their own risk assessments, which may sometimes mean taking actual risks, but will absolutely mean becoming more prepared for complicated life choices ahead. And about this idea that modern teenagers are completely soaked in sex, are out of control in extreme ways, well, it's just plain false. The stats are the same as they've been for a very long time, with 17 being the average age that virginity is lost. In fact, statistics show that actually less teenagers are having sex since the 1990s, and since then, teenage pregnancy is down 40%. But although teens may be less sexually active than they once were, those in the United States still have alarmingly high rates of STDs and unplanned pregnancy when compared to similar countries with more comprehensive sex education. Our anxiety around the sexuality of the young not only causes moral panics, but it affects our health as a country. As our newest administration continues to fund abstinence-only education, a new urban legend abounds among uninformed teenagers about an apparent STD known as blue waffle disease that causes women's genitals to scab and turn blue. I don't recommend Googling it. 
In a show of just how important sexual education is, in 2013, a New Jersey councilwoman spoke with a young male caller who claimed that there was an epidemic in his area. Without doing any research of her own, she presented at a council meeting the claim that, quote, blue waffle disease is supposed to be a virus that is 10 times greater at this point than the AIDS virus. This STD was actually a combination of several STDs at once. The legend, then, is a gross cautionary tale made up by nervous teenagers lacking comprehensive sex ed and telling stories, much like the hook, that expresses the fears they have inherited from their parents. Because without this education, kids absorb all the confusing, weird, conflicting sexual messages of our modern world without the context to actually understand any of it, or the knowledge to stay safe. Studies have overwhelmingly shown that comprehensive sex education positively impacts communities, with less unplanned teen pregnancies and less transmission of STDs and STIs. Instead of taking this into consideration, however, just before his own sex scandal took over popular consciousness, old Billy Boy Clinton signed into law a program designed to teach American kids that engaging in sex before marriage is, quote, likely to have harmful psychological and physical effects, and that abstinence from extramarital sex is the expected standard of human behavior. Our culture charges teenagers with being too innocent to know about sex and too sexually possessed to be trusted with correct information about it. Our sensibilities as a nation have long tried to ban all sexuality among teenagers, treating any expression of sexuality as bad, going through their phones and diaries like hook-handed moral custodians, full of our own sexual miseducation from our own lack of sex ed, sharing lurid, panicked stories of rainbow parties and non-virgin clubs and sex bracelets and soda can sex coupons, believing in blue-hued fictional STDs made up by high schoolers. As the animal dances of the 1920s and the hip-thrusting rock and roll of the 1950s represented fears of integration and the potential loss of social power that it could cause, sex has long spoken to the dominant culture's anxieties of the future, of just what the next generation will be. It seems that many of the points of the Teenage Bill of Rights still apply today, especially the one that gives teens the right to make mistakes and find out for themselves. Teenagers are the ones that will create the new world, whether we like it or not. Maybe, with a little help, they can finally create a world where the sexually active teenager does not die first. And maybe she never dies at all. Next time on the show. Just like teenagers have been taught to abstain from sex, they were also taught to just say no to another dangerous pastime that promised to destroy the very social fabric. Join us in three weeks as we discuss the subject of the second rule to surviving a horror movie, the history of American drug scares. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Assistant produced by Derek Smith, and produced and edited by Clear Como Studios, with voice acting from Will Rogers and Lily Ori. Please follow us on social media, and if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review on iTunes. As always, I so appreciate you listening, and I hope this episode graced you with countless uncomfortable teenagers.